If you have your Bible, open to Mark chapter 5. And I do want to apologize for one other thing. In your notes in the handout, I wrote the wrong verse reference, which the youth group will tell you sometimes um, I don't write down the right passage. Sometimes I'll say we're in chapter 2 and we're still in chapter 1 of John, even though I said we're in chapter 2. So on your notes, where it says just kind of under, don't be ashamed to ask God um, to of what you ask God to do, or don't be afraid of where he leads you. Those first two verse references are not correct. They should be correct on the screen. So I apologize for that. Mark chapter 5. We're going to read the passage we look at today and, and have a word of prayer. Jesus has just gotten off the boat after cleansing a, a man who has many Many problems. And it was a legion of, of demons. In fact, when he says, who are you? They answer back to Jesus. We're, we're called legion because we are many. So we have that whole incident taking place on the eastern shore of, uh, the lake there. And Jesus is coming back and he lands back on the western side, back on the Israelite side. He was over on a, a pagan area. So he, he comes back here, and what we find is the crowd is waiting for him. And this begins to become a more and more common thing. He has a hard time going place to place, as you'll continue to see in his life. And it says in verse 21 of Mark chapter 5, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat on the other side, a great ca- crowd gathered around them, and he was beside the sea. So he's barely out of the boat. And then he, he came, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing he fell at his feet. And he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and alive, and alive, and sorry, excuse me, and live. Verse 24, and he went with him. And a great crowd followed and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had and there was no better, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she left, and it left her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out of him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Before we go further this morning, let's have a word of prayer. We need to not only pray for ourselves in this moment and ask for the Holy Spirit's leading as we look into his word, but we also want to lift up a prayer for those who protect us, who watch over us, who keep us safe, who keep us out of harm's way for the uh, troops, for the peace officers and for the firemen who uh, do a really good job of making sure that we can be here today, especially the troops who ensure our freedom that we have to be able to worship and celebrate the love that Christ has given us. So I want to do this. I want to ask Eric Ward, if you wouldn't mind, lead us in a prayer real quick. Have you ever needed something, something to happen? You just were desperate where you needed your situation maybe to be different. That's where Jairus is at the moment that Jesus and his disciples get back off the boat. 
They had just seen a guy who had made a, a radical transformation, and there's no doubt that the word of what Jesus is, has been doing, or maybe had already done, had probably spread over to the other side. And so here comes the ruler of a synagogue. His name is Jairus. Now, we're not, we don't know officially what his role is in the synagogue. There were two kind of basic lead roles there. You would think of one of them as an elder and teacher, whose job would be, obviously, the, the spiritual uh, influence, the spiritual teaching of those who came to the synagogue to worship. They were in charge of everything from the worship to what was going to be taught there. There was also another person who was basically what we would kind of call a deacon who was in charge of the facility and the upkeep and things of that sort. It's implied in the passage, Jairus probably is more on the elder side of things, elder teacher side of things, but we're not sure, but we do know this. He's a, he's a, he's an authority figure locally, especially religiously. He's the kind of people in, who, he's the kind of person who the people look to for a little bit of guidance. Probably the kind of person who people look to for advice when they're facing what they face. They, they respect him and his position commands a little bit of that respect. So it's in this moment that, that Jairus isn't as much the ruler or a ruler of the synagogue that he is a dad. Because that's what he is when he comes to Jesus. He's not this authority figure. He's a dad with a need. And the need is, is that he has a little girl who's close to death. In the middle of a, of a crowd of people, more than likely the people who, who come to the synagogue where he holds, holds his position, he humbles himself in front of Jesus. Now we're, we're not told what the infirmity is, but we know that he is desperate enough in this moment that he chooses to, to come to the one who has been healing others, who's been changing the lives of others, who, who heals the leper with a touch, even though he could have done it with a word. And I, and I love the reaction of our Savior because then there's, there's no hesitation. Jesus gets off of the boat and we don't even really have a, a red letter, what I would call a red letter response if you have a Bible where the words of Jesus are written in red. We don't even have a red letter response where Jesus says, okay. Clay, it's, it's, he just, sure, let's go. I mean, that's, that's our savior. That's why we, we teach with the youth group a lot of times and we, we give them these little wristbands that have this on it that he came, he died, he arose, he ascended, and he's coming back again. Especially when you read Mark, you find that Jesus is a, is a person of action. He doesn't sit around waiting a lot of the time. Sure, he goes and he prays, but he's on the move. I remember a few years ago, we, um, we had a program. I want to say it was two summers ago. Henry, you'll remember this when we were in New Mexico. Uh, there was one night where I got up to speak to the, at the work camp. And I said, you know, you, I want to challenge you all to be watching for Jesus because he doesn't sit still in our lives. He's always on the move. I want you to open your eyes tomorrow and see where he's moving around you. So Jesus doesn't say, okay, I'll, I'll get to it. Standing there on the shore, he says, let's go. Now, they were probably near a town, so they probably didn't have very far to go. But what happens in this moment is begins to become very typical of where Jesus goes into populated areas. He he takes a few steps, and the crowd gathers. So he's not getting very far, and they're crowding in around him already. And I, I don't think it's where you have the disciples trying to push people away. I don't think it's that kind of situation. They're just going through the crowd. And if you can sympathize where Jairus is, these people are probably keeping 
Jesus a little bit from getting there as fast as he could. Because it says they are thronging about him, which meaning every direction. They're not just behind Jesus, they're in front of Jesus. They're coming from all over. If you can imagine putting a, uh, a, a piece of bread on the ground in the middle of four anthills. Okay, what's going to happen? All those ants are just going to come crawling toward that bread. My grandfather um, had yard birds, I guess is the best way to say it. He didn't have any sort of chicken house. Okay, they, he, The hens had nests that were up high, up on like his outbuildings on his little farm. But it was, they had those chickens. I really thought they were pets. I never knew for a long time that they ate those same birds. Um, I thought they went to the store like everybody else and got them. But no, I found out tragically one day what my grandmother does with a chicken. Anyways, so my grandfather, my grandfather could walk out the door, the back door especially of his little farmhouse. You know what would happen? Animals. Not chickens. Chickens, yes, but dogs. And my grandfather had a pet turkey. His name was Tom. I kid you not. Real original. So he had a pet turkey. And the reason we say pet turkey, because this bird was not worthy of what the chickens were worthy of. And so he just didn't want to, it was nasty, it was gross. He would pretend to ride it sometimes for the amusement of the grandkids. He'd kind of straddle the neck and just like waddle around with it. And the turkey would fly. They had a whole comedy routine. It was amazing. But he would walk out the door and those animals would just come out because they knew. Man, when when Jim, of course, they probably didn't know his first name, but when Jim would come out, they knew that, oh, there was either some bread going in the half tractor tire that all the dogs ate out of, or especially if you went over to this little bitty barn house that still sits there. My mother lives on the property now. It's an old wash house from a lakeside area that my grandfather had moved up there when they were going to replace it. That became his feed barn and his tool shed, and he kept chicken feed in there, and he had an old saucepan that... Somehow the handle had broken off. I don't know the story about the handle. I just know that all that was left was the metal. And he'd reach in there and he'd get that pan and he'd get that scoop out and he'd just start scattering the seed. And the chickens that weren't there would start showing up. I think sometimes chickens from my uncle's place would show up because there would be so many birds. I'm like, where, where did all these chickens come from? Because when we're out there playing or we're climbing in a tree, we Patrick, my cousin, who's my age, and I might see one or two and there's 40 birds out here in the, in the farm, just coming out of nowhere. I think about that when I think about Jesus in this situation. He gets off the boat and the crowd comes. And in the midst of this crowd, there are people who need help. People who are asking him for help. People who are pleading with him for help. And we don't know what help they get along the way. But we're told about one person in particular. She'd been bleeding for 12 years. And I, I, I don't want to be crude about what it is because we don't know what it is, but the Old Testament tells us in Leviticus that when a woman has a, a discharge, she's meant to be ceremonial clean before she can come back, so she has to wait seven days to go back to the temple. This woman had been bleeding for 12 years, and she'd went to many doctors to get help. She's in a situation where she can't even go and worship Openly, if people know about what's going on, because she'll be seen as unclean. She's on the level, in a lot of ways, Gene, like a leper. So when the Bible says that she approaches Jesus from behind him, there's a reason for that. She's trying to stay as anonymous as possible. She recognizes Jesus is of God. She probably doesn't know him 
specifically as Savior and Messiah, but she knows that he can heal her. She knows he can do something for her because he's really, in a lot of ways, the last option she has left. So she comes up behind in the crowd. And the Bible tells us in her heart, she said, if I just touch the back part, the hem, the bottom of the robe, that's enough. If I can just get close to him, enough. She doesn't want to stop him. She doesn't in any way want to stop Jesus from what he's doing or where he's going. But at the same time, she needs him. She needs his touch. Much like the leper I mentioned before, who, who as they're going down the road, steps out and says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus doesn't say you're clean. Clay, what does he do? He touches him. Jesus touches a leper who probably not felt a physical touch in years. And here's a lady who's been desperate for 12 years for some sort of remedy, who's felt it day in and day out, maybe hope day in and day out, this is the day that this stops. And she wakes up and it's still there. The next day, maybe this is the day that the difference is made, wakes up, it's still there. And she hears Jesus is coming and she approaches him from the back and I, I'm, I'm one of those who likes to imagine things. And I, and I don't think it's a, up here. The way I see it when I picture it, she's, she's down low. She's touching the robe where nobody else sees. Maybe she's trying to stay as anonymous as possible. But it's in that moment when she touches the robe that Jesus says, one of the most awesome things. And sometimes, to me, it's a little bit funny because of the disciples' reactions. You know, Jesus says a lot of funny things, especially when you think about him now. Like when he says to the guy on the mat standing by the pool or laying there on the ground by the pool, who everybody superstitiously, superstitiously believes when the water ripples and you jump in the pool, you can get well. Jesus says to that guy on the mat who's lame and cannot walk, don't you want to get well? And the guy's like, yeah. And he said, okay, get up from that walk, go. You know, he says to the, the father whose son is, is going through the, the fit, the demonic fit on the ground. He says, how long has he been like this? Which is kind of a funny statement, really. When you think about it to the dad and the disciples are like, did he really say that? I think when Jesus says to Phil, to Philip, I think it's to Philip that he says it to as the crowds are coming in the day that he's going to feed 5,000 of them. He leans into Philip and goes, how are we going to feed all these people? Like that. Because it's later in the day when he feeds them, and it's in the morning when they're coming. I think to him, he kind of smiled and said, because he knew what he was going to do. So he turns to his disciples, and he says, who touched me? And this is an interesting little note. In Mark, it says the disciples say, the people are all, there's people around you. It says the disciples, right? I think it's um Matthew. I'm getting confused. I think it's in Matthew where this is recorded. It says, the disciples said, there's people around you. Well, Luke, the great researcher, names one specific disciple, which is kind of interesting when you think about it, because a lot of people, a lot of scholars believe that Mark comes from Peter's perspective of what happened as they followed Jesus. They, there's little few little tendencies in there that you think, oh, this is Peter's perspective. Guess who Luke names as the disciple who says, Jesus, who, who are we supposed to know who touched you? There's people around you. Guess who Luke names? Peter. Now, Peter telling Mark, well, all of us disciples said that, you know, and they probably all did. 
But Luke finds out from somebody, well, hey, I remember Peter specifically saying, how are we supposed to know who touched you? But it's an awesome moment because there's a crowd of people, okay? we've I've been in those moments where there's a crowd of people where everybody around you, the people next to you, behind you, even in front of you, you're all moving one direction. Everyone's touching you. And that's what they say to Jesus. What do you mean everyone is touching you? And Jesus is like, no, you don't understand. And specifically, I want to I want to read what Jesus says in that moment. He says, who touched my robe? The disciples said to him, look at the crowd pressing around you. Who? How can you ask you touch me? But he kept looking. And then the frightened woman, because you know when you're the one. Like, it happens in my house. When somebody knows they're the one, whether they are a teenager or an adult, we, when you know you're the one, sooner or later you have to fess up. Happens in youth group too. There was this one incident and it, the culprit I think is now training to be a doctor in New York, but I don't want to name him by name. Um, but we had this cookie jar and it was, it was a monkey and that you took the head off and we would put candy or cookies inside of it. I like to put red Twizzlers inside of it. And the kids all thought that was gross, but still. Um, but I was taking other students home on the van, and I came back in, and Shauna's at the door shaking her head. And there were three of them in there. Two of them are brother and sister. And again, I don't want to name names. But that brother and sister, he's studying to be a doctor, and she's uh, doing a mission outreach, but I'm not going to name them by names. And the other one, his mother sitting right over there. Anyways, um, so the three of them are in there looking very sheepish. And all I know is that now in the youth room, all we have is a cookie jar without a top. Because somebody thought it would be a fun game to toss around the head of the monkey. To this day, I don't know specifically who either missed the throw or threw it. I just know that all three were involved. And the culprit knows. Cade swears, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to say Cade's name. They all like, oh no, it just, it, it got bumped. And I'm like, really? Bumped? Like, were you playing volleyball? What were y'all doing? Um, I don't know. But when you do something, you know it. It was a, I think I paid five dollars for that cookie jar. Okay, I wasn't that upset. Um, it was kind of funny for me because I put saran wrap over the top of it for a few weeks. And they're like, what'd you do? I said, well, we don't have a head to it, guys. You gotta keep all the Twizzlers fresh somehow. Could have put them in a Ziploc bag, but that would have been too easy. Um, but when it's you, you know. And she knows. When he said, who touched my robe? She knows it's in a very specific way. And so the Bible says, in fear and trembling, she comes to him. She admits that it's her. And she says, the frightened woman, trembling in the realization of what had happened, she came to her and she fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said, daughter, and the word daughter, Sean and I were talking yesterday, the word daughter here is so endearing in this moment. It's not ma'am. It's not woman. He says daughter, which implies such a closeness how he feels about her, toward her and her infirmity. In the moment she's touched him, everything is perf- is made whole, it's made perfect. But yet, 
She's still in trembling at what happened. She admits who it is, and he says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Her miracle happened on the way to another miracle. Jairus, or Jairus was headed down the road with Jesus for his miracle. And on the way to his miracle, something happened. It's amazing how little bitty moments in our lives as believers can influence somebody else's life. We had the, the, the little drawing we used with our youth group to help them learn how to share their faith and the basics of who Jesus is. In a very real way, all of us have become believers from one person sharing down the, the row, whether it was a pastor or whether it was a Sunday school teacher. I'm here today because of a lady by the name of Karen Ferguson who was a fairly new believer who was teaching a Sunday school class to seven-year-olds who just knew every Sunday she was supposed to share an opportunity for someone to come to faith. She admitted to me later on, I mean, this is like four or five years ago, she goes, you were one of the first ones who ever responded, and I still didn't totally know what I was doing. I just knew I could pray with you the same prayer that somebody prayed with me. It's interesting how our faith is passed from one person to the next. It's not handed off, it's brought in somebody to be shared. We've been talking about what it means to follow Jesus and with the youth group and the, the second, the second message, the second lesson we had was about Andrew. After Andrew and John are following John the Baptist, John the Baptist points out who Jesus is. And Andrew immediately, and I'll do it like this, and Andrew goes and gets his brother. Well, we don't know which one is older or younger, really. But one of them says, my, my, my Andrew says, my brother needs to hear this. We, we've been looking. So he goes and gets him. In that same way, in this passage, we see faith, in a way, opening up the door to faith. Because here's Jairus very publicly saying to Jesus, I need you to come heal my daughter. She's about to die. So they start to go. So probably through the crowd, there's that murmur. Oh, they're Jairus' daughter. They're going. They're on their way. They're going to go. Jairus' daughter's almost dead, and Jesus is going to go heal her. He's, he's, he's going with them. And here comes this lady who thinks, with what I have, if he can do that, he can handle this. And she dares to go through the crowd to touch his robe. Now these are healing moments. And there are many moments where Jesus steps in and does different things in our lives. I want to share with you one about us that, that Sean and I are in the middle of now. Because we feel like we're on the way to a solution to a big problem. And it's not, it's not devastating but it's above us. You ever just feel like the water is just like right here? And you've done everything to swim up to right there? And you can get the hand up and you're saying, okay, Lord, I just need you to pull me the last of the way through. A lot of you know that Sean and I, we, we built a house. Well, we didn't really build it. We paid people to build it. But we we painted walls and we put up tile. And there are some really good people here in our church that came and helped us with this house. I mean, just really stood in the gap and stood on scaffolding. And I'm afraid of heights. And I'm glad they stood on scaffolding because I'm not the person to do it. Because my legs will be shaking like crazy. Well, through a little bit of the process of, of doing it at the very end, we found out, we were told the house would be built for a certain amount, and we found out it went way over budget. And I mean, uncomfortable over budget. 
And there were people we trusted to look after a few things on that, and it just didn't happen. We were doing our best to do our part to do the things that we were supposed to do. And and it's devastating. Because when you look at the numbers, and I, I'm not going to get into the numbers of specifics, what happens with where everything is now, if you know that we're adopting, we have like a certain threshold that we have to stay under, and we're right here. And it's uncomfortable. And it's worrisome. And there have been a lot of prayerful nights with tears about what do we do, where's the relief going to come from. And we keep coming up with ways that we think it happened, and we had one solution that we thought this will be it, and this last week that fell through. And that was like one of those things where we just, she got a phone call, and then she's like, hey, where are you? And I told her where I was at, and we just sat in a parking lot like we're like, okay, then that's not the solution. What's the next thing? We feel like we're on our way to a miracle. What Pastor Brad would call like a class B miracle because it's not like a healing or something. But for me, when it happens, I'm telling you, I'm still going to say glory, hallelujah, because this situation is above me. It's beyond me because I, I, I need to get to point D and I can make it to point B on my own. And I can see how to get there, but I just need his help because it's so close. And we're stressing. And every day, it's what's on our mind. It's so much on our mind so that that we prayed about it. And a house we've only lived in since May, we, we put it up for sale. Because here's what we decided. Here's what we know in our heart for what we've prayed about the most. What we've prayed about the most in our life up to this point for us as a family is, are those two children we, we really want to get here from Haiti. That's the heartbeat of our entire family, from Sean and myself and our boys. We really want them to get here, and there's nothing, even four walls with brick around them, they're going to get in that way because that's what's important. So we feel like, Anthony, we're on the way to God doing something. We're just not sure 100% what. And when I got to this passage, I started thinking about, you know what? Jairus walked up in front of that whole crowd and said, my daughter's ill. She's about to die. I need your help. And I got to thinking about my, my, my situation because I've been asking friends and family members all over. Just pray for us. Just pray for us because we don't know what we're going to do. I have to have a, a, an eye surgery to stop an issue from getting worse. I have to have that surgery in November and you have all these things just kind of like piling up and 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 piling up. And I get to all of it and I look at my list and we all have that list. Just if you have that list of things you really need God to do, I just want to ask you to do one thing. Just lift up a hand and just say, I've got that list. And maybe it's not for you. Maybe it's for other people. My mother's list is like a front and back page probably that's shoved into her Bible. That's probably written all around one of my uncle's sermon notes because my her brother is the pastor of her church and they got a little country church out there in Arkansas. And knowing my mother, this is what she'll do. She'll be sitting there listening to him and she's making notes in her Bible because she doesn't use the note page he gives for her notes. My mother's one of those people who makes little notes and references in the Bible and will write the date in the minister who preached that passage, which is funny to me because she'd be like, hey, do you remember when you spoke from this passage at your grandparents' church? I'm like, I try to block that, block that out of my mind. Because I hope y'all do too, because that was, that was probably horrible. I mean, it was eight minutes of probably a lot of, uh, 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 uh. She goes, oh no, it was great. I made notes. And I'm like, those notes were probably as long as my sermon was. There you go. Um, but she, she makes those notes in her Bible. She probably got one of those front and back 
pages with, I'm praying for this person, I'm praying for this person, I'm praying for this person, I'm praying for this person. Flipped it over, praying for this person. Probably has arrows drawn where God answered the prayer right here, you know. Because that's how my mother is. We get those lists, whether they're for ourselves or for others. And I and I say all that to say this, not to say, hey, feel sorry for James. Sometimes we don't need to be ashamed of what we're asking God to do. But for whatever reason, there's something inside of us that doesn't like to admit it. That we need help. I can be a little headstrong and say, well, I want it done my way, so I'm just going to do it. I don't know anybody else in this room who's that way. <clears throat> I won't name names. Anyways, um, but we can be that way. And then we can be that way with our problems. We can be that way with our lives. Where we want to hold on to what we have. And it's not a sense of control. Sometimes it might be embarrassment. And we don't need to be afraid to let people know what's going on. Now, do we need to probably make sure who we trust? Sure. I'm not saying go around and tell everybody, this is my problem, this is my problem, this is my problem. But Jairus makes a, a, takes a moment and says, I'm trusting you to handle this. What, what are we going to do? Where, where do you think, what should we do? And Jesus, we don't have it in there, but it just, it, he agrees to go. So Jairus wasn't afraid to admit it. He wasn't afraid where Jesus was going to lead him because the path that Jairus had to take to get to his house was not circumventing everybody else. It was through a crowd of people. And sometimes the path, we, we can come up with our own plan to what we think God should do. And we do that. Hey, Lord, I really need you to answer my prayer. Oh, yeah, by the way, I made some notes. Here you go. I think you should do this. I think you should do it this way. But that's the awesome part about who how God is because we might think we have the best plan and sometimes they line up. Like, wow, that's exactly what I thought you would do, God. And then sometimes he takes us the roundabout sort of way. My father was notorious, especially when we lived in Houston, Texas, for making his own shortcuts. And he one time... We were going from Cyprus, kind of the Cyprus area. You you know Houston, Eric. We were going from Cyprus, which is on the north end. We were actually coming from Conroe to Cyprus. And he ended up in Tomball, um, which isn't exactly close, but it's not a straight shot from where we were. And uh, he calls my mother from a payphone because this is the, the early 80s. Hey, honey. Um I'll be home in about 30 minutes. I uh, And this was the old joke. We got this from Looney Tunes about my dad. He would say, I took a wrong turn at Albuquerque, which is what Bugs Bunny used to say when he'd pop up out of a hole and he was in somewhere. Oh, I took a wrong turn at Albuquerque. He said that to my mother, meaning I tried to make a shortcut, and now your son and I are like 30 minutes further away from home, and you've been sitting at home for about 45 minutes wondering, where are they? I mean, it should have only taken 15 minutes for us to get home from where we were. And dad was now 30 minutes out. We still talk about that. Like one of, and dad, is this one of your shortcuts? No, I, I promise you, this one will work. Okay. Sometimes we go the roundabout way. Sometimes we go straight through. But we don't need to fear. We don't need to fear where he's leading us. We need to trust in it. Proverbs 3, 5 says, lean not, 5 and 6 says, lean not on your own understanding. We know what we think would be good for us. He knows what's best. And he doesn't, Clay, he just doesn't know what's best for us. He knows what's best for Henry. So as you go on a path and Henry watches, 
He knows what's best for Henry too. So as he takes you, Henry gets to watch. Or Jamie does. Or even your parents do. And that sometimes is not exactly what we expect. And we don't get the, the real, we don't get to see the beautiful side of it until we're way over here, Anthony. Way over here. And we go, oh, that's why you said us that way. Because you also don't know what happens. Go ahead, David. If you go to the next slide. We also need to be this. We need to be amazed when the unexpected happens. I don't think Jairus thought, okay, on the way to my house, another person's going to be completely healed of something that they've had for 12 years. That'll be great. Because Jesus stops, acknowledges what's happened with Jairus standing right there. Now, the next time I get the opportunity to speak, I'm going to talk about Jairus' daughter and what happens with her because Jairus is going to find out in just the next moment that his daughter has passed. In the time it took him to get there and for Jesus to start making his way through this crowd to get where he's going and, and to heal this lady along the way, Jairus' daughter passes away. But it's also in, in that moment, I think, and we are not there yet, but Jairus is probably at least a little bit enthusiastic. His faith is probably bolstered in that moment. Because he's probably thinking, like like I said at the beginning, if Jesus can do this for them, he can do this for me. And he's probably thinking, wow, if Jesus can heal this lady after 12 years, his daughter probably wasn't even 12 years old. And so if Jesus can heal this lady with this infirmity for 12 years, this is probably going to be no problem to him. So be amazed. And when I say be amazed, glorify God. I got mad at my mother the other day. And it was a playful mad. I'm not holding a bitter grudge to her because I love my mom. Um, she's actually coming to visit. So if any of you ladies like sewing, she's sewing me, altering me some suits. Because she says, you need some suits. And your uncle has some old suits. And I'm like, are we talking butterfly color leisure suits? And she's like, I don't know. And I'm, I'm part of me is like, I hope so. Um, but knowing Pat, probably not. Anyways. But she was bringing me some suits to alter. So I may have to set up some play dates with some of you ladies. We have sewing machines. But my uh, my mother says, you know what? I was telling her about everything going on and all these things. And I said, I just don't know how it's going to all work out. I know it will. I just don't know how. And she goes, well, I'll tell you what. I've been praying that God would be glorified through what's going on in your family. And I said, you prayed what? I've been praying it all along. I told you. And I said, I said quit praying that. And she was really, I said, no, because that's what I want too. Because with what goes on in our lives, we we need to get to that point, Eric, where we want God to shine through, not us. I'm not an accountant. I'm not a finance wizard. I'm a youth pastor. I love God's word. I was telling Shauna, I have probably as much fun studying and preparing as I do delivering a message. I'm a Bible geek. I love it. This is the extent of what I know and what to do. So everything about my situation, which is probably very simple and it's probably going to be one of those things where I'm like, way to go. On the way there, I want areas where I can say God did this. Or God provided this. Or God made this happen. Because it's in those moments that we get to point people back to him and not toward us because I have no solutions about anything. I just know we can pray. The other day I got to pray with Carolyn 
um, at post after the surgery, like a couple of days later. And I remember sitting with Janice and her sister and them just talking about her being feeling weak and worried about her. And the doctor came in and said she came through with flying colors. And I just sat there for a moment and went, okay, everything we're all worried about. And the doctor was like, oh, she was a champ. She came through flying. I mean, like, no worries. I mean, I was just like, well, are we talking about the same lady? But glory to God, we were, right? And it's, and it's a beautiful moment when you sit there and you go, look at what he did. Or look at what he spared us from. Or look at what he led us through. Even if there's just horrible, hard moments that we have to go through, we can stand back and be amazed when the unexpected happened and we go, I may not have enjoyed the journey, but I'm, I'm glad it happened, Lord, so you could take me through it, which is hard to say sometimes. To say, I'm glad it happened. But if my kids learn something from what we've gone through, I'm glad it happened. If somebody else's faith is boistered about what we go through, I'm glad it happened. And that's where the peace comes in. You notice he doesn't say your sins are forgiven. He says peace. Why? Because the healing she needed wasn't just physical in her body. It was in her heart. She didn't need to just know that the, that the, that the hemorrhaging, the bleeding was done. She needed to know everything was fine. Everything's okay. And in a lot of ways, it's not coming back. Go in peace. You're healed. It's over. It's final. It's taken care of. It's the tattoo I have on my arm to tell us die. It is finished. It's done. Go in peace. And that's really the big idea. And that's really the big idea. David, if you would go to that, I think that last one, the big idea is this, as as we're on our way, whatever we're trusting God to do, whatever obstacle we're hoping that he can help us face, and whatever need in faith we hope he will supply, don't keep it to yourself. Share with somebody for number one, so they can pray with you. So they can pray in agreement with you that God's hand would be seen in the situation. But number two, so that when he does something, so that when God does something and brings you through it, they can go, wow, look at what God has done. Look at what God has provided for us. Because on the way to your miracle, someone else might experience a miracle of their own. And that's the beauty of our faith, not just... And the, I mean, the, the greatest beauty is that we have a God who sees past our sin and sends his son who dies on a cross for us, rises again from the third, from after three days from the grave and we can put our hope, our faith, our trust in him alone. But another beauty of this is that we get to walk through this life together. Not by ourselves, but together. So that Gene can see what's going on in James's life. And then Wanda can see what's going on in Gene's life. And Doug can see what's going on in Wanda's life. And Ron can see what's going on in everybody's life because he's taller than the rest of us. You knew I was going to work in a height joke in there somewhere. But that's the beauty because on the way to all of our miracles, something else can happen where God changes somebody else's situation. And that's what I'm praying for you today. Whatever you're facing, whatever you're dealing with, whether it's Whatever, whether it's a, a healing need where someone is sick and hurting. Maybe somebody's recovering and they just need just a little bit of extra grace today. Maybe, maybe it's a loved one who's just in a wrong place in a wrong way. 
and they just need somebody to come along with a message of hope. And maybe it's your situation. Maybe you got one like us that you just don't know how you're going to get out of it, but you know God's going to pull you out of it, but you're not 100% sure. I want to pray for you today. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, I just thank you for what you do for us. I thank you for how you speak to us, how you guide us, how you take every situation that we're in, and you have a way of changing it for your glory. It's Romans 8.28. All things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his service. So, Lord, we, we pray that as believers, not not as a as a room that has church leaders in it and a pastor in the room at the moment, but... All of us who just, as we stand at the foot of the cross, are on a level playing field. We're all the same. We all need you. We all need you in different ways. Some days, some of us just need strength to make it through the day, and that's physical as well as it is emotional and mental. For some of us, we need a healing touch. For some of us, we need you to just touch different areas of our lives in order of kind of provision. For some of us, we need wisdom. Lord, help us. Help us not to just keep this to ourselves when you do something, but to tell somebody about it, to glorify your name through it, because that's really what worship is in its essence, is saying, this is what God has done for me. So I pray this today throughout the room, that you would help us to be able to share, not in a worrisome way, but in a very, uh, in a way, as you said in your word, pray believing you've already received, Lord, for mine and Shauna's, our, our boys, our, our situation we're in. I believe we've already received it. We just haven't realized it yet our situation. I pray for those who are in the midst of turmoil because there are way, way, way bigger problems than ours out there. I just pray that they would get that glimpse of hope that how you reach down and touch one in the very same way you reach down and touch another. Lord, I thank you for how you've pulled us through so many things as a, as a church, as individuals, and as a group. I pray that you continue to do that. I pray that your mighty hand would work. And Lord, I want to ask that we would be able to see it. And it's in your name we pray. And amen.